Now the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Thanks for joining us on this Friday, November 17th, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour. I'm Jared Serby, filling in for Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors are Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up on this hour of the Federal Drive, FEMA aims to close the disaster preparedness gap among older Americans. Also, DOD adds up the results from a talent management experiment. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. First up, though, last month marked the 10-year point since DOD first stood up the Defense Health Agency. And to put it mildly, there's been an evolution in DHA's mission since then. The initial idea was to have it be largely a shared services provider for the military health system. Since then, it's taken charge of running all the military treatment facilities, plus the TRICARE health plan, plus DOD's electronic health record, medical logistics, and a lot more. Lieutenant General Talita Crossland is DHA's director. She talked with me during Federal News Network's open season exchange earlier this week about that evolution and DHA's new strategic plan to guide what's ahead. This is an excerpt from that much longer conversation. As you noted in your introduction, um, the DHA has evolved from shared services and over the last decade, particularly the last five years, has experienced a lot of change. Um, We were in the throes of transition quite a bit. And uh, coming in as a director, I thought it was important that we settle, if you will, that we we focus on now the transition is over and how are we going to go about executing this incredible mission we've been given uh, on behalf of the Department of Defense in support of the military departments and the COCONs. And so with that in mind, we, we embarked on a pretty ambitious strategy to move the organization from transition to execution. And I thought it was extremely important that all our stakeholders see themselves in our strategy, which is one of the reasons you see so much detail in the strategy. And as we built the strategy, it was equally important that we take it as a collaborative approach. Uh, And so early on, um, after my confirmation and as I prepared to assume the job, I got to work with the the medical departments as well as the uniformed services, uh, the joint staff teammates and industry partners to give me some ideas, to give me thoughts on what the current state is, what the current needs are. And then for us to look at what the opportunities are that we as an agency can move towards going forward. Fundamental to our strategy is we really do have to evolve healthcare. The the current state of healthcare in our country, as well as in the military health system, is not positioned for what we all need going forward to improve health and build readiness. And so with that in mind, again, got the right folks together and, and then pretty aggressively and pretty early on came up with the strategy that you referenced. And it's interesting to hear you say that the transition's over because over these last 10 years that I've talked about, it's been, it seems like a continuous state of transition. Some of it internally self-directed, some of it directed by Congress. What are the most important things that you think have actually been accomplished over the past few years to to put you in a place where you can say the transition is is complete or, or fundamentally complete? Um, First, you know, we got that input and guidance, both from Congress and from within the department. So step one is a vision of where the DHA should be on behalf of the DOD and the mission set and getting clarity on that. So I think my predecessors, as well as the last 10 years, has kind of honed us in to this is what our mission set is. And as you described, the last piece of that was moving the military treatment facilities, medical research and development, 
and public health. Those were the last pieces that moved over in the last three to five years. Uh, and now that that's done, and my predecessors, as well as department leadership, very much focused on getting that done. What does done mean? It means moving the dollars. It means moving the resources. It means for me as a director to give clarity on what the mission set is now that DHA has all of that under it. And that that was a big part of what the strategy was meant to do, which was to say, okay, now we're here. What are we gonna do with all of this responsibility that has transitioned over the last decade? And how do we run it as an integrated healthcare system to improve the health of all our beneficiaries, many who get care within TRICARE, as well as those in a direct system. Because when we do that, we support the DOD's mission of readiness. Yeah, on, on that point, that's that's actually where I was going to go next on your point about the need to to evolve healthcare, and, and and we'll talk in a lot more specifics about what that looks like as as we go here. But it seems to me that the organization you run is is just fundamentally more of a challenge than any other large health system because of that sort of bifurcation. I mean, you now have more direct control and centralization over the military side of the health system than I think DOD has ever had. But that's, as you just referenced, only part of the equation. There's also this large purchased care system. So you've got to try to integrate those two very different things together. Just talk about that challenge for a second, if you would, and, and how you think about that, uh, those, those those two legs of the stool. Yeah, that, that's a fantastic question. The way I actually look at that is when you when you say the word military health system, the M is the first letter. And if I, as a director and the DHA, keep that in mind, that is what is unique about our mission set. It's not a bifurcation, it's the mission set, right? And visualizing it as divergent and bifurcation makes it much more complicated and complex to run because that meant we're, we're not seeing the totality of the mission, which is a military health system. And so how do we literally get after that? The first is, is what's our priorities as a military health system, right? Which is the active duty, direct care, focused family care system, as well as the purchase care system, as well as supporting care in a deployed setting on a battlefield, right? So what are the priorities of that system? Because that's the system I'm a part of, right? And the first priority is to keep the force healthy and ready to deploy and win our nation's wars. That's everybody's responsibility in the system. The second is to make sure the medical force is trained and ready to deploy and win our nation's wars. The third priority is to be able to receive casualties along the continuum of care, from point of injury all the way back into our Walter Reeds, our Brook Army Medical Centers, our San Diego's, right, all our large MTFs, play a significant role in supporting the operational force across the continuum of care. And then the fourth thing we must do is deliver a benefit that's legislated to almost 10 million very special Americans that either served in a uni- in uniform, their family served with them in uniform, or are currently on active duty and with their family members. And so when you frame it that way, then it makes it much more of a cogent strategy. And for us as an agency, gives us a clarity on how we need to move out. And I don't see it as divergent. I see it as the totality of the mission side. Yeah, the mission makes sense to me. I, I, I'm curious how far along you are in sort of figuring out as a practical matter what that full integration looks like. Is that a, is that a you know, 
future state where you figure out uh, what what integration really means, or, or do you have in your head right now what that looks like? Oh, absolutely. Um, and so when we say integrated, uh, a good example working with our managed care support contractor. Uh, I'll pick one, the one on the East Coast, Humana. When we look at, when the agency looks at healthcare and we look at what Humana does for us for in support of our mission set, we consciously make decisions on where that care is delivered, how best to organize that care, whether it's inside of a military treatment facility or in the network, and how to pay for that care. Right. So that's when I say integrated, I see the totality of the mission set. In some cases, the best care for the system is inside a military tre- treatment facility. In some cases, the best care, the availability of that care is in the network. And talking at the um, managed care support contractor level, which we do regularly, is a conscious decision on how much care we, we try to keep inside of our system versus how much care we purchase. And we do that bumping it against those four priorities I laid out. The services obviously have a huge role in manning the facilities. We work with the Army, Navy, Air Force on actually doing that. Uh, and so it is a complex mission set, but we are executing it with the framework that the entire system is integrated not independent, where I make decisions, we look at just the direct system independent of the network. We look at the direct system only in the lens of taking care of active duty and active duty family members. We look at the network system, we don't do that, we look at it all comprehensively. And so when we talk about modernization, modernizing our healthcare system, we're going after things in our strategy that address all 10 million beneficiaries, right? We look at it as how do we how do we deliver care to 10 million beneficiaries when our priorities are those four things we laid out and they are part of our solution set in some cases and how do we make that make sense? Whether we use a new virtual platform, right? Whether we, we do um, virtual encounters, how do we see all 10 million so that we can run the system in an integrated fashion? Are those decisions made differently based on where in the world you're talking about, what population you're trying to serve? Because you, you, you can't do a one-size-fits-all, obviously, for, for all the population you serve around the world. Absolutely. So one of the things um, I, I pushed really hard early on was to get these defense health networks stood up for the very reason that you're alluding to. Uh, the agency is global, and the healthcare challenges, needs, requirements really are ultimately executed at a local level. And so getting nine senior folks, flag officers and general officers in place to help me, the director and and, uh, the uh, deputy director and the leadership team at this level make those decisions. It was key that we get those leaders in place to help us get after some of those unique requirements and challenges that have to be managed at the tactical level, but integrated with our managed care support contractors. So what we're able to do and provide in the location in New Mexico looks very different than what we're able to do and provide in an urban area like where I'm at in the national capital region. And the way we orchestrate that is through these networks who interface with the agency and the managed care support contractors to do it in a, in a holistic look, not a siloed look. That's Lieutenant General Talita Crossland, the director of the Defense Health Agency, talking with me during Federal News Network's Open Season Exchange. You can watch the full discussion at federalnewsnetwork.com. 
Still ahead on Federal News Network, DOD adds up the results from a talent management experiment. That's next on The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom. Back on Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom. DOD personnel officials have been sifting through the results of a recently concluded challenge. Staff in the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness sought ideas from uniformed and civilian employees on how to improve what they call talent management, new and better ways to recruit, retain, and promote people. Federal Drive host Tom Temin spoke to Force Development HR Specialist Beth Stewart and Special Advisor to the Undersecretary Jeanette Haney. And tell us, well, first of all, what were you trying to get at here? I guess ideas from people who were already in DOD, either on the uniformed or civilian side, on what might have improved their experience in coming in, recruiting, and so on. Tell us what this was all about. Dr. Haney? Absolutely. Thank you so much. So just for a little bit of background, the Talent Management Innovation Challenge was the first of its kind to focus attention on the mission-critical issue of talent management and the need for a more strategic and cohesive departmental talent management approach. And we can give a little bit more about the why in a second, but just to set the stage, it was a mix of bottom-up innovation with top-down strategic alignment, encouraging DOD military and civilian employees at all levels to submit their promising talent management ideas with the potential to make an impact. And we really hoped with this to harness the diversity of thought, experience, background, and capability offered by the total force. We can get into the details of how it went here in a second if there's interest. Well, sure. (laughs) This ran for about a month. And how could people submit ideas online? You had some kind of a mailbox for this? Yes, actually. We invited participants to submit ideas in the following priority areas, recruiting and sessions, promotion and retention, and then a wild card area as a catch-all. Since this was the first of its kind, we really wanted to cast the net pretty wide. And we had an open season of about seven weeks from early August to September 30th. That session has concluded, and we're now in the process of vetting the ideas to push some forward to a semifinal round late this year and early next, and then a final round in March. So right in the middle of all those stages right now. Okay, Beth, and how many ideas came in? Did you get a big basket full of uh, tickets here? It was a little concerning because we had over 3 million people who were eligible to participate in the challenge. But we had a reasonable number of 200 really good ideas and over 150 participants and teammates joined to help them provide those ideas to us. And how did that break down uniformed versus civilian? There's about 30% of the participants are in the civilian category. And then we had officers and enlisted participating from every branch across the military. And I guess this is probably obvious, but did the uniform people talk about what it would take to help the armed services get to their recruitment numbers, which they've been struggling with? And did the civilian people talk about, you know, regular federal employment that happens to be under the DOD umbrella? It was really interesting. We had both of those ideas, but we also had ideas that applied to both the military and the civilian population together. In fact, for the recruiting ideas, they proposed more of a joint effort recruiting civilians and military together so that we appeal to a wider talent audience. Yeah, because in many cases, you've got people that in the civilian workforce who were military. I think we've got a couple of cases in point right now. Absolutely. Jeanette, maybe a little bit more on the whys of this whole effort. 
one of the things that we really enjoyed about this was the passion and the energy that came from these ideas. People are giving us parts of themselves. The folks in the total force are the ones closest to the pain points. And if you think about how big, diverse, and dynamic this department is, as a nation, we talk about America's strengths and how those strengths come from our people, and that's just as true here. And we saw such a range of ideas coming from across the department. Beth, I'm not sure if you mentioned the, the different grades and ranks we saw, but perhaps adding a little bit of info on the scope of that could help. We had officers, you know, from 01 to 06, you know, your lieutenants to colonels. And I'm sorry, I don't know the Navy grades, but we had civilians from GS4 to the senior executive service, and we had enlisted from E9 to E5. Okay, yeah, that's pretty much the range there. We're speaking with Beth Stewart. She's a force development specialist for the Defense Department and with Dr. Jeanette Haney. She's special advisor to the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness. And with the understanding that you're still evaluating the ideas, give us a sense of what people specifically suggested here. Well, let's start with recruitment, because that's always a problem, especially on the military side these days. Dr. Haney. I'll say just, you know, typically innovation challenges have focused on inviting technical solutions. So we certainly saw some recommendations and we can't go into specifics as we're still vetting these for the next round, but broadly looking at talent, data and analytics, artificial intelligence and machine learning and visualizations and developing expertise and understanding and leveraging talent data. And that's was both promotion and retention focused and recruiting and accession focused. And Ms. Stewart, what else do we hear? The ideas wanted to target the total population and not just recruit for military service, but also civilians to support the DOD as well. We saw a number of ideas that were interested in recruiting STEM talent and more ways to appeal to them, more ways to market what service is all about from the life that you live and the opportunities that you have working in the Department of Defense that you won't get anywhere else. Yeah, because when you look at the civilian workforce in DOD, it really is the range of things. There's STEM, tons of people in research and development, research and technology transfer throughout the different armed services in DOD, cybersecurity, acquisition, logistics, huge issue for civilian people. And did you find that all of those get represented in the ideas? I don't know that we saw specifics with each one, and we're trying to be careful to not give away too much, but we saw an incredible breadth of focus on different career fields, occupational specialties, and pathways. All right. Well, you got a couple of hundred ideas in from those three million people, and do the couple of hundred ideas at least span a wide range? You didn't get 199 of the same idea and one of something else. They spanned a pretty wide range, and I would say that there were some commonalities, like there were quite a few opportunities where we were vetting the different ideas and said, oh, wow, if we connect this one to that one, think about how impactful that would be. But yeah, it pretty much spanned almost everything across the department. All right. So what happens next with these 200 ideas? And I guess especially how will you operationalize them if that's important? Because an idea to an actual doctrine change or a procedural change in DOD is quite a hurdle you know, to the point where Lloyd will say, good idea, I'm signing off on it. It is It is indeed a process in DOD to make change happen in different ways. But, you know, the open submission period has closed, so we're carefully reviewing the ideas and scoring them now based on the challenge criteria. We're evaluating those on creativity, relevance to talent management, potential implementation benefits, feasibility, and impact to the department. So we're tapping subject matter experts of the key ones, and we're purposely not saying an exact number, are going to move forward to a semifinal round. 
which will be a virtual pitch in front of a panel of key DOD personnel and readiness experts. And then from there, we'll recommend a small group move up to the final round. How each one progresses will really depend on the merits of each idea and where we're able to connect them. But we also don't see just the semifinalists and finalists as the end-all be-all. We're hoping to connect good ideas, no matter how mature they are, to different subject matter experts across the department through this. And these presentations to the judges of the next round, will they be by you or will they be by the people who submitted the ideas that might get tapped and say, guess what, we've got something for you to do up here at the Pentagon? No, it will definitely be by the folks who have the energy and passion behind these ideas, the ones who have been the closest to the challenges and figured out how to mitigate those. And are those people geographically scattered? I mean, might they have to make a trip to Washington or, I guess, Virginia, technically, to do this? Yes, that's a great question. So the semifinal round is virtual, and then the final round will be in person. However, there will be a virtual option or a delay option if someone needs to, you know, for operational reasons, propose or make their pitch at a later time. And Jeanette, will you pick them up at, say, the airport in a helicopter, since I know you can fly them? (laughs) I fly a Honda Odyssey now, so maybe a 2010 (laughs) Honda Odyssey that's missing paint on top. That would be me. All right. They do have a paint problem on top, don't they? (laughs) They do. you got to get to them fast or they don't cover it, by the way. So there's more to go yet. And what's your basic timeline when you think something might be a solid proposal for the uh, brass to consider? So every single one of these ideas is different, which makes it a little challenging to say exactly when. But what we're hoping is for the final pitch, which we're targeting for March, leaving that again a little bit open-ended just because we didn't know how many ideas would come in, et cetera, the best ones can really move forward quickly, or they could be something where there's a pilot and then they move forward down the road in different phases. Jeanette Haney is Special Advisor to the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness, and Beth Stewart is Force Development Specialist for DOD. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive, and you can hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still ahead on Federal News Network, FEMA aims to close the disaster preparedness gap among older Americans. That's next on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu filling in for Tom. Back on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network, I'm Jared Serbu filling in for Tom. The Federal Emergency Management Agency wants everybody to be as prepared for natural disasters as they can be, but FEMA's placing a new emphasis on older adults. The agency says they're more susceptible to the consequences of disasters. A new disaster preparedness guide tries to help local emergency managers and other stakeholders deal with that reality. Sherman Gillums is the director of FEMA's Office of Disability Integration and Coordination, and he joins us now to talk more about the new messaging campaign. So thanks for talking with us. I really appreciate you being here. Um, Get us started by talking a bit about, you know, why the focus on older adults? Why is this a a messaging approach that, that FEMA decided was important at this point? Well, FEMA has been partnering with the Ad Council for nearly two decades, and a lot of it was focused on general preparedness. And of course, older adults are a part of our community, so uh, there was no exception there. The problem is, uh, statistically, uh, older adults are more likely to be abandoned or unprepared in the event of a, of a, a weather event or extreme weather. And, uh, and a lot of this is really about, first of all, acknowledging that their needs may differ from the general population, but also hearing from them and their caregivers was an important part of this. Uh, and so we embarked upon a campaign to uh, not just recognize that their, their needs are different, but also provide uh, specific content and information 
that's about giving control back to older adults and their families. That's why it's called a take control campaign. And there are three aspects to it. The first aspect is to assess needs. Uh, everybody has basic needs that are similar, but when you're an older adult or when you're an older adult with a disability who may have a fixed income uh, or live in a rural area, the needs are going to be a bit different. And, and these disasters don't care where they go. They go wherever uh, they happen to go. Uh, in this case, assessing the needs in the event someone is displaced or, or may not have a neighbor nearby, we need to know that in advance. The second part of that is making a plan. Uh, and this is where a lot of people have trouble because if you've never been in a disaster, it's a little hard to plan for something that never happened to you. That's why ready.gov forward slash older adults has plenty of resources that are based on the experiences of people who have been in disasters in the past, many older adults. We also talked with uh, folks from the Rosalind Carter Institute, AERP, Alzheimer's Association, to truly understand what's what's at stake and, and what's at play when folks are making decisions on whether to evacuate. And the last part of it is to engage your support networks. Make sure your neighbors know who you are and what your needs may be so that in the event that the true first responders, which are your neighbors, uh, know what to do in the event of emergency. A lot of what you just said sounds like it's generally applicable to everybody. You know, assessing your needs in advance and making a plan sounds like good advice to people of all ages. You mentioned that older adults' needs differ, though. In, in what ways, in FEMA's experience? Well, about 27% of older adults in the U.S. live alone, uh, many of them on fixed incomes. And when we're talking about uh, aspects of recovery, such as relocation, uh, in many cases, there may be uh, there may need to be a continuity of care aspect to their lives. How do you get access to medical care when your community has been leveled, as we saw in Rolling Fork in places in, uh, in Selma? Um, and so a lot of it is about understanding that there are two things at play. One, that their needs uh, are unique to that individual. But two, they also want some semblance of control. And a lot of times it's been taken from them as they age, but certainly in a disaster, when a lot of us feel like we've lost control, these are people, it's hard to get that back uh, when it's gone too far. So we want to put people in a position to uh, be able to speak and give voice to their needs. And older adults are not always in a position to do that, especially if they have a caretaker or a caregiver who's making those decisions for them. What What is the agency doing to work with state and locals, for example, other stakeholders at the local level to, to help spread this message and to help do some of this advanced coordination? Well, a major aspect of the Ready campaign, and in this case, we're getting ready for the Winter Ready campaign. It's about empowering state, local, territory, and tribal uh, emergency managers and leaders uh, with preparedness content to send down to uh, all their respective constituents and making sure that they have the they have enough information to provide people with uh, aspects of readiness that uh, if it's not there, it becomes apparent when a disaster is imminent or when it happens. Uh, in this case, we want to make sure all up and down the readiness scale that everyone is hearing the same thing, understanding the same thing. And that's what this campaign is really about, in addition to stakeholders. So it's not just the emergency responders, it's also the stakeholders who know the communities the best. And and how well is FEMA prepared um, to, to actually tackle these issues? It, it always feels like there's more natural disasters happening in any given year. I wonder if that's actually true from FEMA's perspective in 2023, and, and, and how well staffed are your teams uh, to handle these kinds of things? I'll start by saying we're as staffed as well as we need to be. Uh, no matter what's happening around society, we're always going continue, to uh, continue to make readiness a priority. What's quantitatively true is the number of billion-dollar disasters. We've already exceeded the 2022 number of billion-dollar disasters, which was a record year. And so in 2023, we have seen more disasters, but there's also been a corresponding decrease in fatalities. I can't say what that's attributed to. All I can say is we've been really proactive with our messaging, 
We see big storms in Guam, uh, in places like Florida, California, where people are heeding the information. Uh, there's a lot of cooperation up and down the chain. Uh, but there is, in fact, there are, in fact, more storms and, and uh, climate adaptation is the term of the day. And, and that's what we're trying to do by making citizens and, and anyone who may be in a disaster more ready and prepared for it. I, if I can reiterate, uh, accessing ready.gov forward slash older adults. Uh, there's a, a, a lot of information that applies to folks with disabilities, uh, caregivers. That's a big part of this that often gets missed. But we want to make sure that they know about that resource and uh, and make their plans accordingly. That's Sherman Gillums, the director of FEMA's Office of Disability Integration and Coordination. We'll post a link to the new preparedness guide at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Still ahead on Federal News Network, why expanding risk management to a broad audience is becoming more important for agencies. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu filling in for Tom. The country's protections from cyber attacks can be at risk when Congress can't pass legislation to fund the government. I'm Edward Siegel, author of Crisis Ahead, with another Crisis Management Minute. Government shutdowns can have immediate and far-reaching impacts on many essential services. That includes the work of federal agencies to protect the country from cyber attacks. The ripple effects from these self-inflicted emergencies can create a crisis for companies and organizations. All government departments and businesses should account for federal shutdowns in their crisis management and crisis communications plans. And don't forget to practice responding to these worst-case scenarios when holding exercises, drills, and simulations to ensure that those plans will work when needed. That's it for this edition of the Crisis Management Minute. Back on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom. Risk management no longer can be just for risk managers. While it's true that agencies with a CRO or a chief risk officer are typically more successful in managing risk, surveys and other research make it clear that all executives and managers need to be involved. Thomas Brandt is the chief risk officer at the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. He tells executive editor Jason Miller about how the Association of Federal Enterprise Risk Managers, or a firm, is expanding the view of risk with the help of the Treasury Executive Institute. The Treasury Executive Institute provides, you know, really superb training and development resources to, of course, the Treasury Department, the bureaus, legacy Treasury components, and then several dozen other agencies that have chosen to make, you know, the TEI resources available to their senior managers and leaders. So typically it's the grade 14, 15, and SES who um, participate in the, the, tra- the TEI offerings. So our opportunity to work with them and to, to develop signed a, kind of an ERM curriculum which we offered this summer. You know, we had 75 to 100 folks that participated in each of the sessions that we delivered. And again, it's an opportunity to get to part of the federal sector that we don't always touch through maybe the summit or some of our our traditional affirm offerings. So again, great opportunity to expand our reach. And if listeners, you know, their agencies are part of the TEI network, they should keep an eye out in the program listing for some of our future events. So so this was not necessarily a set of classes on its own, or is this kind of built into the broader curriculum that TEI offers? 
they offer a variety of different tracks and they bring in speakers and authors, you know, books and uh, just topics of interest, you know, to the federal workforce. And so risk, of course, is one that they quickly saw was a value add. So we added it into, I think, their overall program portfolio. But there was kind of a track on ERM that, um, you know, folks wanted to, you know, go to more than one. (laughs) They could pinpoint those. uh, But it's kind of added to their overall program portfolio. And tagging back to something you said earlier, just so can, some of the survey results showed you that when you have a chief risk officer or director of enterprise risk management, those agencies seem to be more mature, advance this concept in the frameworks. And getting the GS14s, 15s, and SES on board is part of that effort. Yeah. Hey, we don't have one or, hey, our risk chief risk officer really is, is – is, Tom, but he also wears three other hats, sure. and we maybe we need to remove some of those hats. So, getting those folks to really understand why there's benefits is, is that kind of the goal: the, the education of of a group that maybe yes. needs a little more attention. Yes. Well, again, it's because in order for risk management to work in any organization, everybody has to have a role. Everybody needs to be attuned to risk, and they also need to understand or be aware of kind of what do I do if I identify risk. You know, is there some place to go? Is there somebody that can help? Um, and kind of, you know, what are the what are some of the tools that are available to me to help get a handle on kind of what are the, the key risks in my organization and how might I raise these and get assistance from other parts of the organization? So that's kind of the intent of this is why is this important? Why are organizations focusing on risk? What can I do to help? How can I help my agency, you know, get ahead of, of risk? Um, and what are some of the steps and, and concrete actions I should be taking in my organization? But, you know, at the end of the day, when we're mitigating risk, we often have to rely on folks throughout the organization uh, to work together and partner with us in coming up with those strategies, those tactics, and those techniques that are going to help us minimize kind of risk exposure and, you know, hopefully reduce the risk likelihood. And that topic we talked about earlier is to boost resiliency. Everybody's got a role in helping their agencies be more resilient. Uh, to risk. This may tag back to a lot of what we've been talking about during our conversation, which I appreciate all your your time today. Is there one or two things you'd point to that says, here's a common mistake, common obstacle, a common challenge that agencies have who are maybe not as far advanced in risk management as others beyond the one you've highlighted, which is I think the lack lack of or a empowered CRO slash director. Is there another one that you, as you've talked to these GS 14s, 15s and SES, you say, Hey, if there's one thing or two things you could do here, it is. Yeah. I think the, one of the biggest challenges that we face, and it's probably not unique to the federal sector, uh, but it can come to sort of minimizing the consequences if a risk should manifest and sort of downplaying what the impact could be, or also maybe becoming sort of overconfident um, or complacent because, well, something nothing has happened here. So since it hasn't happened, maybe we can reduce the controls that we've got in place. Maybe we can lessen the monitoring. And I get it because we're resource constrained. So we're always trying to you know look at where can we shift resources. But what we've what we've often seen too often is that when we look at sort of some of the underlying causes behind crises that have happened in government and other sectors, you can often trace that back to somebody that discounted a risk, we've reduced controls, you know, we, we've re- relaxed oversight, or we kind of dismissed the risk and said, ah, you know, again, this hasn't happened, so not something we need to be worried about. Those are the areas and those are the times where probably your antenna need to go up and say, we actually probably need to be putting more attention 
uh, here to avoid kind of that that risk manifestation. Tom, if you're okay with this, I'm going to put you on the spot. Is there anything when you look back over your time, whether at the FRTIB or TS or IRS or wherever, yeah. where that's maybe happened? Uh, the IRS flood just comes to mind. I mean, that's not <laughs> fair to them. Uh, we're not want to blame them to say, well, they put their servers on the floor instead of on a pallet, you know, six inches high, and then that created problems. But is there any time where maybe the, the eye got taken off the ball and then? Without calling anybody out, anything that comes to mind? Well, the, just the flood happened before ERM was in place, but I do remember that. And of course, you know, um, everybody had to move out of that building, and we kind of crammed into to other space. But you know, I think we weren't the only building downtown that got impacted by that. Um, you know, I think just sometimes we we can be so focused on the operational risks that we maybe don't always step back and think about reputational risk and strategic risk and think about specifically how some of the decisions we're making could be perceived or received by our key stakeholders, right? So how might some of the actions we're taking um, be received, perceived by key stakeholders, particularly the Hill? So that's where I think organizations – and that's where not just IRS or FRTIB but – I think everybody in the federal community that's been practicing risk has been able to be a bit more aware of sort of things like reputational impact. And and the nice thing about the risk process is it it informs decision making. So if you have that uh, the audit oversight um, or somebody coming in to say, did you consider this? You made this decision, you know, but did you think about these risks? We can at least then point to a process or hopefully documentation and say yes. Here's what we considered, but maybe just expanding our view of the types of risks that we as leaders and federal agencies need to be attuned to. You bring up reputational risk, and that led me right down the path to customer experience, user experience. Is that seeping into the ERM world a lot differently because of the push, whether from the Biden administration with the executive order or just this push from technology? Oh, what's the user want? We have DevSecOps and Agile and iterative development that helps the user. There's always risks to that too. Is is that been – is that a conversation you all are having more and more? Yeah. Well, I think we sort of touched on a little bit. The other nice thing about ERM and risk management is it it does help organizations have those trade-off conversations because, again, if we're going to be um, shoring up our defenses in one area, that could have an impact in another area. It could impact the customer experience. So we want to understand kind of what are those – you know, what are the impacts and then what can we do to mitigate or lessen? So does that mean we need to do more outreach? We need to enhance our communication. We need to figure out, you know, what some other alternatives are. Um, and that's, I think, again, where we can have some value from ERM by bringing those parties together, having those conversations in a transparent manner, and then really thinking through consequences, both upstream and downstream, again, um, around some of our risk decisions. Thomas Brandt is the Chief Risk Officer at the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board and a member of the Association of Federal Enterprise Risk Managers, or AFIRM. AFIRM is holding their annual summit on November 28th and 29th in Washington. The General Services Administration is driving what it hopes will be the final nail in the LPTA coffin. As one of three major acquisition policy changes GSA is seeking over the next year, the proposal would remove language in the schedules program that many blame for why agencies use lowest price technically acceptable too often. For details about the three policy changes, Federal News Network Executive Editor Jason Miller spoke with GSA's Senior Procurement Executive Jeff Kosis. The first is for our acquisition workforce. I know you're familiar with the Federal Acquisition Institute. It provides training for 
about 200,000 members of the acquisition workforce across all the civilian agencies. They're funded by a uh, tax, if you will, on the revenue earned through interagency contracts, such as schedules or GWACs. Uh, that is a 5% tax. It's been set at that level for uh, the last uh, 20 years. Our, our legislative proposal would increase that from 5% to 7.5%, which would provide uh, an additional $7 million a year or so to invest in acquisition workforce training. The idea here is it costs more to train people. You have more people to train. We've seen numbers in the acquisition workforce, I think you mentioned it, are, are up, up, up. And you have a potential retirement wave that you're going to have to bring in a whole new set of acquisition workers. That's some of the thinking behind this, I imagine. That's some of it. But just what we ask of the acquisition workforce is becoming increasingly complex. We've seen new requirements around our cybersecurity, for example. Congress has asked us to train the workforce in cybersecurity protections. FAI is developing a new curriculum. There's charges for things like that. The second one focuses on what? Tell me a little bit about the second proposal. The second uh, proposal focuses on our authority for running the federal supply schedules. Back uh, in 1984, when Congress uh, enacted the Competition and Contracting Act, or SECA, they said that the procedures we use to operate the schedules are competitive, provided one, contracts are open to all comers, that's easy, and two, it results in the lowest overall cost alternative. So that's uh, a confusing term, that's a largely outdated term. We comply with that. Uh, we get a fair and reasonable price at the contract level. Then we have uh, regulations, tools, training, policy to force order-level competition. So it gets us to that end result. But over the last uh, 40 years, we've moved to a best value uh, mindset. Acquisition is we're not trying to buy the lowest price item. And the problem with the standard in that language, with lowest, uh, over, lowest cost alternative, is it gets confused with lowest uh, price technically acceptable, or LPTA. We think if we replace that language with best value, it's clearer, it's easier to train, it's easier to explain. More important, it's consistent with the direction Congress has given and consistent with what we're trying to do with the acquisition system. And the reason why you, this is a legislative proposal versus a regulatory change is because it's written in statute back in SECA about what this means under the schedules program. Exactly. This was written when SECA was enacted back in 1984. So to update that language, we can't, we can't uh, deviate from a statute and regulation. We need to update the statute first. There seems to be a big push across industry and, and, and government really to understand what best value is. We've been talking about best value probably since the feels like the 1990s, probably maybe even before that. You believe this change would go a long way to really establishing best value as, as the, the basic standard, or what would it do by changing this beyond improving the language? And you mentioned some of the other benefits of understanding and standardization. It will help us with our contractor base who can be comfortable offering complete solutions knowing that we are not trying to get to uh, LPTA. It will help us with the customers in knowing that they can rely on the schedules to uh, achieve their objectives for uh, best value. And it will make training and education easier and more consistent with the way the federal acquisition works. I want to shift over to the regulatory change too. This is in the Federal Register 
talk a little bit about that. That is the economic price adjustment change, and this dates back a couple years ago in terms of a, a deviation you all issued. Talk about what you want to do from, from that initial deviation to now. Following the pandemic, we all saw price spikes. Uh, inflation was running really high. At that point, GSA issued a deviation for our schedules program. We said we're not going to enforce certain limits on price increases. The standard set of clauses that we use limited the number of increases you could ask for, limited the timing, limited the amounts of those increases. None of that really worked in trying to have a healthy partnership with industry in a time of rapidly increasing prices. So we've operated under deviation for much of the last two years. We've recognized, though, that this is working well, it's effective, uh, it empowers our contracting officers to make good decisions, it helps us in working with our industry partners. So the proposed rule in the Federal Register would make that permanent. It would update the several EPA clauses currently in the schedules program, consolidate them to one, and get rid of all of these regulatory mechanisms, instead relying on uh, market forces, on the knowledge, intelligence, and negotiating skill of our contracting officers, and on industry recognizing that they have to operate in a competitive market. And again, that's GSA Senior Procurement Executive Jeff Kosas talking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. And Jason's here now to talk a little bit more about what's going on at GSA and these regulatory changes. And Jason, I guess let's start talking a bit about the economic price adjustment changes that you guys talked about. It's a proposed rule. It's been an important update through a deviation to the FAR for the last two years. So, I mean, what has GSA learned since that has been in place? I think the reason why they're moving towards a proposed rule is because they see it's been beneficial for companies, for agencies, for everyone involved. And this dates back to March 2022. We've seen, you know, when the highest level of inflation over the last 40 years really hit the U.S. and it hit contractors. And a lot of the contractors who said, hey, we used to charge X, now we're charging X plus 10% or 20% more, and we can't update our schedules program so easily. And GSA said, okay, well, we have to relax how that EPA works. And I think that's what this uh, proposed rule does. And, and to GSA's credit, they recognize that, again, this has been working well. This needs to be changed because of the volatility in the market itself. And, and that's what they're doing. The frequency, the timing, the number of, of economic price adjustment, price increase requests, all uh our need of, of updates because it's been a long time. The, the biggest challenge that GSA has faced, and this is what I've heard from industry and others in, in and around government, is the time it takes to get the flow down. Okay, do I understand what this uh, deviation to the FAR means, the letter that they write, the acquisition changes? So putting it as a proposed rule to the FAR really will help uh, make it so contracting officers can change contracts when they need to under the right circumstances more quickly, more easily, and be more comfortable when they're doing it. I think that's really the, the purpose of this proposed rule. And then on LPTA, um, you know, the, the perennial observation we always hear from industry is that it's it's bad, it's getting worse. And from government, the perspective tends to be something like, well, it's not as bad as you think. It's more of a perception issue. Do we have real data on how prevalent it, it actually is? 
there's not been a lot of new data recently. I did a little bit of research and found when you look back over the years, the Government Accountability Office looked at LPTA, specifically around Defense Department contracting, and, and they found, you know, dating all the way back to 2018, this was a report from 2018, and it goes all the way back to 2014, that, that there was some obligation, something like $25 million back in, in 2014. Jared, we know that's nine years ago, but we have not seen a lot of new data. And there's been several rules over the last several years to try to put limits on LPTA. There was a FAR rule back in uh, February of 2021 uh, based on the 2019 Defense Authorization Bill that would, again, uh, add restrictions to the use of LPTA for for non-DOD type contracts. The point here for GSA, and I think this is what's really important, is they're changing some competition and contracting language from 1984. Jared, that's such a long time ago that says, here's what we... uh, you know, are aiming for. And that's where that best value, we heard Jeff Costas talk about the idea of really cementing this idea of best value. And sometimes you will pay a higher price, but for better deliveries or better services or better oversight, you know, there's, there's things you do pay for. I, I think that's really the big deal. And a lot of this is just for schedules contract. Let's, let's be clear. This is not for everything that is, is going on across the entire government, but specifically for schedules contract. And as schedule schedule contracting gets more complex, it's more for services, less for products. That's where I think vendors get frustrated. Say, hey, we're not just selling widgets; we're selling everything that is needed to install that widget and make the widget work for a long period of time. And that can't be done through lowest price technically acceptable. And I think that's why this legislative request change is such a big deal. All right, Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks very much for coming in behind Mr. Kosas and explaining things a little more. Always a pleasure. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook or LinkedIn. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. I'm Jared Serbu filling in.